0: Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Support independent Mi'kmaq media. Become a Mi'kmaq Matters patron at patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters. There was a major development last week in the ongoing legal battles to regain and obtain membership in the Halibut First Nation. The Federal Court of Appeal has certified a class action that will advance the claims of the tens of thousands of people seeking status in Halibut. The case is Gerald Brake v. Attorney General of Canada and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians. The decision from the Federal Court of Appeal overturns a lower court decision denying certification of the class action. Our guest this week is the lawyer, representing those seeking status in Halibut and financial damages for having been denied status. The lawyer is David Rosenfeld of the law firm Koski Minsky. I interviewed him in his office in downtown Toronto. I started by asking David Rosenfeld about working with Jerry Breek, who passed away shortly before, the Federal Court of Appeal released its decision. Before we start let me ask you about uh, the man whose name appears on the judgment, Jerry Brake. Tell us about working with Jerry and uh, your memories of, of Jerry.
1: Uh well Jerry was a, a wonderful man. Um, he was an incredibly vibrant uh, character um, that I mean certainly touched me in in every interaction I had with him. I can only imagine that's the same case with everybody else. Um, a very positive uh, person. Um, it, throughout the entire case, we have had some challenges in this case, and he has been an incredibly positive and supportive person, not only of my work, but of the, the cause as a whole. And he took on his role to represent uh, others very seriously. Um, it's an a absolute devastating loss. Um, of such a, a nice man <laughs> first and foremost uh, and he he would have been an incredible representative for for this group of people and it's just it's it's terribly unfortunate that it took so long to get this decision uh, he would have and probably is actually right now uh, jumping up and down um, with this decision uh, and he certainly I uh, was always supportive of Greg Collins um, Uh, being a representative in addition to him but now in 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 his replacement so uh, I know Jerry's uh, looking down maybe on this conversation right now with with uh, with joy
0: yes thanks Jerry for for your work Uh, the case will still be known as Gerald Brake versus Attorney General of Canada
1: I think that will change Um, soon we have some some sort of formalizing of the the court Documents to do. Um, it will be a replacement of um, Jerry as uh, the representative plaintiff, and so it will have to be in in Greg Collins's name for now. And maybe anybody else um, we might try might see it would be worthwhile to appoint um, in Jerry's stead.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you expect? Uh Canada and or the FNI to appeal? I suppose there's some appeal period and will we, when will we know their intentions in that regard?
1: I, I, I don't know what their intentions are. Um,
0: is there a time period in which they have to... Uh...
1: There is a time frame. Uh, my understanding is it's 60 days um, for them to do so. I know the federal court is um, certainly a prothonotary, has been uh, in touch with us trying to push the push the matter to the next stages uh, to implement the Federal Court of Appeals decision, but I don't think that holds up any decision that the Attorney General of Canada or the uh, FNI wants to make about trying to take this decision to the next level.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, we received some questions from listeners uh, anticipating our conversation today, and um, one listener uh, asked, what does it all mean? and I think what she's, what she's asking is what does the appeal mean to the 10,000 people who lost their status and to the many tens of thousands of applicants who did not get their status in the first place?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, what does it all mean effectively is that the uh, potential recourse for the, all, both of those sets of groups uh, is still uh, uh, a possibility, uh, certainly before this. Um, given the decisions in Wells and Abbott um, just recently, um, without this class proceeding going forward, there effectively would have been no uh, further recourse for that group. But this class proceeding um, is going to go ahead. It's going to address all the issues that came about from the initiation of the supplemental agreement. That includes the people who were initially approved and then rejected, and that includes the people who were rejected uh, outright uh, by virtue of the supplemental agreement. And again, the case is about effectively um, going back to the original 2008 agreement uh, and reassessing or assessing uh, um, the entire class on that basis.
0: So possible recourse could be people getting status and people getting money uh, through damages, I guess, would be the two elements.
1: Uh, Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of nuances with there's varying groups of people and the way that they have been addressed in the supplemental agreement and the issues of self-identification and the community acceptance, so there will be um, variability among the class, but yes, that's exactly right. The chance of uh, the, the remedies available would, would likely be uh, a reassessment and possible uh, determination of, en- of enrollment status and then potential damages as a result.
0: Listeners want to know about timelines. Uh, what are the next steps? and? Um, Perhaps in that regard, you could talk about the litigation plan, which uh, has been approved by the court. So I guess that sort of sets out some timelines.
1: Um, It does. It's litigation plan that uh, has been approved by court is is, is somewhat of a a general natured plan. Um, We um, will have to go before the case management uh, judge uh, or prothonotary to set up a timetable for the next steps. In the short term, meaning the next, I guess, several months, and excluding any potential for an appeal by um, the respondents that would mean um, notice would be required to go to the class members that uh, a class proceeding um, is representing their interests and if they don't want to um, be bound by the result in that class proceeding they could do something by uh, opting out Uh, and in addition formalizing the, the claim and the court documents to address Jerry's passing and the Federal Court of Appeals reasons, and and I'm guessing that that whole process should be in the next two or three months. Thereafter, we would move down to determining the merits of the case, which could take um, months, if not Uh, a year or more, to uh, exchange documents and um, have what we call examinations for discovery where you ask the other side questions about their claim, and then a hearing. Uh, Not clear on what timing would that be required because it's not clear on what scope uh, or process uh, the parties are going to uh, either agree upon or the court's going to want to have in respect of these claims.
0: Will there be an official, so there'll be some kind of notice to the class, and uh, in that regard, uh, a listener asked, how do I confirm that our names, uh, the names of her and her family, will be included in the class? Do members of the class have to take any steps, or are they automatically part of the class?
1: Um, The way the federal court system works is that um, class members if they meet the class definition as certified by um, the federal court of appeal, are automatically included as class members unless they take a step to remove themselves from the proceeding called opting out within the time frame provided, and that time frame will be provided uh, shortly as part of the notice that we mentioned earlier. Notice to the class saying, "Hey, there's a certification." Uh, a class proceeding excuse me uh, that's representing their interests, and if they don't want to be part of it then they can remove themselves but otherwise they don't have to take an active step to be included in the class proceeding I welcome everybody to contact our firm to um, let us know who they are um, provide us their contact information that way we can uh, contact them with any court um, court uh, approve notices and so that it can be direct as opposed to often notices is in newspapers um, or, or whatnot um, that might not be direct or maybe the class members addresses from the enrollment process isn't up-to-date uh, Whatever the case may be. Um, I welcome people contacting us to, to let us know who they are.
0: A listener asks, what is the role of the representative plaintiff? Could you explain how the vetting process was done to have Mr. Collins represent the class and any impact you feel it may have on our
1: case? Um, Well, the representative plaintiff's role is to represent the class, as as is part of the the name of of their title. Um, It is to uh, make um, strategic choices on behalf of the class um, and to act in their best interests, and they are not permitted solely to look at their own claim, but they must take into consideration the claims of the entire class. And so that um, comes around on on all sorts of issues, and they're they're there to instruct class counsel who ourselves have a duty to the class and not just to the individual uh, representative plaintiff. Um, So that's effectively their role. The specifics role is they they are available for um, examinations. They provide documents of their own. Um, They submit themselves to questioning. They put themselves forward uh, as a representative and get cross-examined and have a court decision about them. Um, So those are the kinds of things that they're responsible for. Um, And we determine representative plaintiffs based on on how, how they, what they're sort of Claim situation is, uh, what their facts are, and whether they would be appropriate to represent the entire class. Um, Would would the individual impact the class? Uh, uh, It it might, but only to the positive. I would say, um, in that they take the best interests of the entire class, and that's you know, class counsel will work directly with the representative plaintiff to ensure that. uh, the entire class uh, is 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 thought of, and the best interests of the class are, are protected.
0: Uh, would the, uh, maybe you don't know yet, but would the hearing of this matter take place in Toronto, Ottawa, some other location?
1: It uh, has not been determined yet. Um, it could basically happen in any federal court uh, uh, house, um, but um, it's not clear. Currently the, the issues have been dealt with by uh, in Toronto, um, um, but that doesn't foreclose uh, any other federal courthouse.
0: The Federal Court of Appeal stated that uh, the court in Wells had not dealt with the argument of improper purpose in relation to the making of the 2013 supplemental agreement. Can you unpack that element of the decision for us, the notion of improper purpose, and the kind of ev- evidence you would call on that.
1: Um, well, I guess it, it's it's a consistent message from both Wells and the Abba case in that both decisions stated that there was that no evidence was presented on the basis of improper purposes, um, and so that's one of the reasons why those two cases aren't. Um, uh, don't prohibit uh, the, this class proceeding from going ahead, among a number of other reasons. But, um, I mean, certainly the, the the concept of the case as a whole was that they entered into this 2008 agreement, it got ratified by the processes that they were determined on the agreement, and then uh, the federal government saw that how many people were actually claiming, not just claiming, but also being approved through the system, and then, I guess, um, uh, Predicted how many people would ultimately uh, be approved under the current process that was happening and They didn't want that to happen as opposed to just simply letting the process that they agreed to uh, uh, Continue there are provisions in the 2008 agreement suggesting that if they didn't uh, like what uh, the enrollment committee or the masters who dealt with appeals were interpreting the document, the, the the agreement, or applying whatever principles were supposed to be applicable, they could take steps to, to rectify that, and and they did to a certain degree, but ultimately this was just a simply uh, uh, after the fact change, saying, "Oops, um, maybe my our estimates were, were wrong, but I'm not allowing eighty thousand people to be uh, members in a band and receive, I guess, benefits under the the Indian Act." And, and so, what evidence? I mean, w- will be. We'll be examining the federal government about um, those kinds of issues um, and getting documents and examining witnesses.
0: David, a question about the Wells and Abbott decisions. Uh, We've had decisions from the federal court on those. How does the Break case uh, fit with those? What is the context? What is the relationship between Break and Wells and Abbott?
1: Yeah, well, there's no, I guess, a specific relationship between the applicants or the plaintiffs in, in the break case and, and those in the Wells and Abbott case. Um, there are separate individuals in separate cases. My understanding is that the Wells and Abbott case were either supported or, or brought by the MFNAN, if I have that uh, mm-hmm. correct. Are, are, this class proceeding is not brought by the MFNAN. Um, the Wells and Abbott decisions were uh, judicial review applications of individuals. Um, there were two, actually, two Wells cases, but in any anyway, are about individuals and their individual um, rejections under the supplemental agreement. Uh, the Wells cases dealt with self-identification requirements, and the Abbott case dealt with the community acceptance requirements. The, the break class proceeding deals with all of them combined. Um, and the Federal Court of Appeal has, has mentioned, at least with respect to the Wells case, and why that case is not binding on this class proceeding. And the determination in that court is not binding. It may be persuasive, but it's not binding on this um, class proceeding. So, um, despite, um, I would say, the negative decisions in Wells and Abbott, which I'm not sure what the status of Abbott is and whether there's an appeal, there certainly was an appeal, was not an appeal in Wells, which I, I think is incredibly problematic. Um, but uh, problematic in terms of it should have been appealed, um, but I guess it wasn't for whatever reason. Another reason why this class proceeding um, um, should continue because certainly Mr. Brake would have expected that decision to be um, appealed Um, in any event. Point being uh, is that the decisions in Wells and the Abbott case are separate. The um, people, I guess, leading those decisions or those cases are separate. and um, that's the way uh, the, the cases have been dealt with. And hopefully, there'll be a determination of all the issues uh, soon in this proceeding.
0: Can you just say a bit more about uh, on what grounds you think the Wells decision could have been appealed?
1: Um, well, I don't agree with the rationale about the types of documents that should have been provided or the time frame in which it should have been provided. Um, I think it simply missed the point on the artificiality of imposing uh, a time frame for when people's um, statements about self identification were no longer honored or respected. Um, if it just so happens that somebody um, um, was, which I've spoken to a number of people about this, but it just so happened that somebody was helping another individual with their claim and then resulted in, in that individual's claim being late in terms of this time frame after the ban officially got created. Um, why is that individual's statement that they self identify different than the one who was two days earlier and and there's no principled reason or basis for that and why the second person or the person after the deadline would then have to find documentation that they may not have or exist to prove that it just seems utterly flawed uh, um, period and and the Wells case permitted some aspect of that um, distinction to continue.
0: Right, and the, the only the, the remedy provided in Wells was that people had more time to submit uh, information about self ID, and you think that was not uh, an adequate way to deal with the issues there.
1: It's not just an adequate way, but also the documentation or the evidence that someone could prove about their self identification was limited too, and not everybody would have necessarily applied for a, a position and marked um, self identification on, on whatever documents would be required or or. Uh, dealt with the census i mean it's just it's a very limited group of documentation um for someone to prove this i don't i don't i mean i appreciate that maybe the the form that someone sends in isn't sufficient but why wouldn't a sworn statement saying i i self-identify and and this is how long i've done so and this is what i've done to further that that um uh, beliefs so I, I mean i think that's fundamentally unfair in restricting the kinds of evidence that someone would, would have to uh, prove uh, that issue for.
0: Um, so before uh, the ultimate decision in this case would known, would people have to go through the original enrollment process to know if they would have qualified for status under the original agreement and principle process?
1: Not sure I, I entirely follow, but um, the case is going and nothing has changed until the case determines that it should be changed. So all the current processes that exist are ongoing until a court determines that they shouldn't be. Uh, so anybody should continue on with those processes as it exists. In the theory of the case um, that uh, individual that the 2008 agreement should apply and not the supplemental agreement, um, If all else being equal, the case decided that, um, then yes, there would ostensibly be a a reassessment based on the 2008 agreement. Those who were accepted in the initial uh, phase one, but then ultimately rejected after the supplemental agreement, one would think would automatically uh, be determined to be accepted because they already had that decision made. But that's, a, that's sort of a long process from now to, to get determined. Ultimately, nothing has changed until the court uh, says so, and so all the processes that currently exist are are still continuing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, good, David. Well, um, we'll follow the process, and I guess the best place for people to find information is the koski Minsky uh, website because there will be updated information there for people involved and who are members of the class. That's
1: exactly right. The koski website is kmlaw.ca, and in there you'll find um, a webpage specifically devoted to this case, Um, and it'll provide latest developments as to what is happening in the case. It'll provide our contact information where you can contact the firm and and let us know who you are, Um, uh, and, and we'll go from there. Thank you, David. Thank you.
0: David Rosenfeld of the law firm Koski-Minsky. Before we go, a note that the next regular meeting of Halibu Chief and Council takes place this coming Saturday, November 16th, in the Community Room at One Church Street in Cornerbrook, starting at 9 a.m. Council meetings are open to all Halibu members. To register, contact Tina Diamond at 634-5111 or email council at with your full name and band registration number. And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the technical producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Thanks to our radio partners, Bay of Islands Radio, Voice of Bombay, CHMR, and Miobegag, First Nation Radio. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.